The only real power comes out of a long rifle. Telling words from a man who exerted his power by striking fear and enacting violence. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing the life of Russian revolutionary and dictator Joseph Stalin. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of podcast shows on your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Now, back to the life of Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin, you know the name. It reverberates with gravitas and also terror. The man was a Russian Bolshevik revolutionary turned politician who ruled the Soviet Union from 1925 to 1953, the year he died. Stalin was depicted on posters as broad-shouldered and big-boned, towering even, a dark, mysterious, powerful juggernaut. But would you believe that he was actually only five feet four inches? Whoa, that's crazy crazy but true, and one of his arms was shorter than the other due to a childhood injury where he was hit by a carriage. His face, forever pockmarked by smallpox scars, was a rugged terrain that surrounded what some have referred to as tiger eyes. And who could ignore that thick, bushy mustache above a stern and rigid upper lip? I know I never can. But there's more to Joseph Stalin than his mustache and his falsely intimidating stature. Much more. He was a prisoner many times throughout his life, and an exile. He was a devoted and tunnel-visioned revolutionary, fighting for communism and against czarist rule. But he was also a dictator, and a murderer, many times over. These are all accurate and defining words for the various stages of his life and political career. But now, let's get to know the man behind the Red Curtain. In order to do that, we must look at the world into which he came. The year was 1879. Russia was the largest country in the world, with a landmass larger than the United States and Europe combined. Russia's borders included the Ukraine, extending all the way to Siberia. It was under the rule of Tsar Alexander III of the famous Romanov dynasty, which had been in power for around 300 years. Like all royalty, he and his family lived a rich and privileged life, but 90% of the population sadly did not. The country was mostly made up of peasants and lower class workers earning meager wages and living in simple villages. One of these villages was the town of Gori in the province of Georgia. On December 21st, in a modest house on a stretch of rural land, a baby was born. His name? Joseph Jugashvili. Oh, try saying that three times fast. It's not easy, I'm sure. His mother, Ekaterina, 18 at the time of his birth, was a housewife and washer. She had married at the young age of 14 and had three children before Joseph, but they had all passed away during infancy. She was fearful the same would happen to Joseph, so she coddled him. His father, on the other hand, did not. Vissarion, a bootmaker, was known for his rabid alcoholism and violent temper, often beating Ekaterina and Joseph. So Joseph witnessed and experienced violence firsthand as a child. Not to mention another horror he experienced as a child, smallpox. 
He contracted it when he was seven years old. His mother was terrified it would claim his life. But young Joseph recovered. However, the scars from the smallpox left his face heavily pockmarked. He earned the cruel nickname Pocky by his peers. Ekaterina, a devout Orthodox Christian, sent Joseph to study at a church school in 1888 when Joseph was nine years old. She had her heart set on eventually sending him to the seminary so that he would be on track for the priesthood. This became even more important when Joseph's father, Vissarion, died in 1891. This meant Ekaterina was now a widow and a single mother, and she was even more determined to set her son upright. She sent 16-year-old Joseph to Tefli's Theological Seminary in 1894, and he received a full scholarship to attend. His schedule was extremely structured and rigorous. Prayers in the morning, a quick breakfast, many hours in class, another set of prayers, a modest dinner, a walk outside, prayers, then bed. The students had barely any privileges. Despite this lack of freedom, Joseph found ways to satisfy his rebel spirit. He started going by the moniker Koba. That was the name of a Georgian folk hero who stood up for local peasants against their horrible landlords. Joseph used this alias when writing his articles while at the seminary. That same year, 1894, Tsar Alexander III died of nephritis, leaving his 26-year-old son Nicholas to ascend to the throne. Nicholas became Tsar Nicholas II and soon married his empress, Alexandra Fyodorovna. Nicholas might not have felt ready to ascend to the throne. After all, his father had been only 49. That should have given him years to cultivate the skills to rule well. Unfortunately, he didn't get that time to train. Nicholas listened to his father's advisors and continued to pursue the conservative policies of his father. From the start, he was not a popular ruler. Perhaps in part due to the unpopularity of Nicholas II, young Joseph soon joined a secret society called Mesama Dasi, or the Third Group, which advocated for the province of Georgia to gain independence from Russia. It was through this group that Joseph first learned about the revolutionary concepts founded by German philosopher and economist Karl Marx. To understand the principles of Marxism, we must first learn a little about socialism, a social and economic practice that focuses on public ownership over private ownership of property and natural resources. Within the socialist doctrine, people don't live and work independently, but all contribute to one workforce and can then share in the products and benefits. In other words, society, meaning all the people within it, should own or control property for the benefit of everyone. It's important to note that socialism is purely an economic system, but communism, an offshoot of socialism, is an economic and political movement. Communism rejects a class system and religion. But there's another important distinction, probably the most important. Socialism aims to grant the people the right to decide how the economy should function. But communism gives that power of decision to a single authoritarian party. Karl Marx wrote the infamous Communist Manifesto, which was published in 1848, as the basis for this movement. This pamphlet became the most significant writing in the history of communism. Joseph was drawn to Marxism. He talked about it later in life, saying, quote, I became a Marxist because of my social group, but also because of the harsh intolerance and Jesuitical discipline that crushed me so mercilessly at the seminary. The atmosphere in which I lived was saturated with hatred against Tsarist oppression." End quote. 
In 1899, 20-year-old Joseph was expelled from the seminary. There are various guesses as to why. He couldn't afford tuition, he didn't attend class enough, but the more accepted theory revolves around his involvement with Marxism. Records from the seminary state that Joseph's expulsion was due to his political unreliability. In other words, his communism. But the expulsion didn't curb his political fervor, it fueled it. Joseph began reading Iskra, or The Spark, a newspaper put out by the Social Democratic Labor Party. For those unfamiliar with the SDLP, it was founded in 1898 in Minsk, Belarus. Its members believed that socialism could only succeed as a system after the peasants and lower-class workers united. But there was dissension among the SDLP. The continued conflict led to the formation of two new revolutionary groups, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. The Bolshevik Party was led by Vladimir Lenin, and the Menshevik Party was led by Julius Martov. Famous revolutionary and politician Leon Trotsky, who had been working with Lenin for some time, was torn between both parties but eventually sided with Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Both groups wanted to abolish capitalism and overthrow the czarist regime, but they approached these goals differently. Lenin's Bolsheviks were hard-headed revolutionaries who would stop at nothing for their cause. The Mensheviks were not willing to cross as many lines. Joseph sided with the Bolsheviks. In 1901, Joseph joined forces with other revolutionary minds of the SDLP, ready to organize strikes against czarist leadership. People with his similar views liked Joseph's initiative and steadfast devotion to the cause. And he soon proved that he was a man of action. In April of 1902, Joseph helped organize a strike at his own place of employment, the Rothschild Power Plant in Batumi, Georgia. He was subsequently arrested, imprisoned, and deported to the isolated wastelands of Siberia. In 1903, during a brutal winter, he tried to escape. But it was too cold and frostbite was a major threat. However, he tried again the following year. This time, he succeeded. He rejoined his comrades in his home province and began to establish himself as an outspoken leader. He spoke out against the Tsar and his attempts to quash revolution, while also organizing action against the Russian government. In 1905, his comrades elected 26-year-old Joseph to represent them at a Bolshevik conference later that year. That's where he would meet Vladimir Lenin. Nine years older than Joseph, Lenin had been involved in the communist movement in Russia nearly since its inception and had been responsible for introducing thousands of young people to Karl Marx's teachings. Lenin and Joseph realized at this conference that, though they didn't agree on every course of action, their beliefs about the next steps to take mostly lined up. They became close very quickly, with Lenin referring to Joseph as his wonderful Georgian, and Joseph calling Lenin his inestimable mentor. They began working together to strengthen the communist movement. Not long after, Joseph met Ekaterina Svanidze, known as Kato, when he began boarding at her house. He had known her brother, a fellow revolutionary. They clearly bonded over their political views, but there was also an undeniable physical attraction. Joseph was enchanted by her, even saying that she melted his heart. His friends couldn't believe how he could be so severe in his work and so tender with her. And it wasn't one-sided. Kato worshipped Joseph. She supported the revolutionary movement and was fascinated by Joseph's ideas and charm. 
She would often help organize fundraisers for the cause. They married in 1906, madly in love. Kato gave birth to a son in 1907. They named him Yakov. Sadly, Kato wouldn't live to see him grow up. She contracted typhus soon after and died that same year. Yakov was only nine months old at the time of her death. Her death nearly broke Joseph, who became overcome with grief. Friends were concerned Joseph might harm himself during a moment of grief, so they took away his revolver. At Kato's funeral, Joseph told a confidant, quote, This creature softened my heart of stone. She died, and with her died my last warm feelings for humanity. End quote. This grief over Kato kept him at a distance from his son Yaakov. In fact, they never developed a close relationship. Despite the tragic loss of his wife in 1907, Joseph reimmersed himself in the revolutionary efforts. He and his group of Bolsheviks robbed banks, built bombs, produced counterfeit money, and ransomed wealthy children. He was arrested and exiled several times, though he continued to escape back to hold positions of authority in Lenin's power base. But in February of 1913, Russian forces arrested 35-year-old Joseph, and he was once again exiled, this time to one of the most distant corners of Siberia. He would remain there for over four years. But don't think that Siberian exile meant stagnation. No, Joseph was always working and planning for the socialist cause, and he replaced his alias Koba with another. I'd say it was an upgrade. The Russian word translated to man of steel. That name? Stalin. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to historical figures. By 1914, 36-year-old Joseph Stalin was rotting away in Siberian exile, doing his best to contribute to the communist cause while his comrades fought the good fight back west. More and more unrest was brewing under the rule of Tsar Nicholas II. The region was oppressed and suffering from extreme poverty, and a shocking world event would only make it worse. In 1914, the terrorist group known as the Black Hand arranged the assassination of the Archduke of Hungary, Austria, Franz Ferdinand. Tsar Nicholas, siding with the Serbian nationalists who had carried out the assassination, sent Russian troops into the fight. Thus began World War I. Sadly, Russian forces were ill-equipped, and the ruthless German troops destroyed them. Four million Russian soldiers were killed or wounded in battle within a year. The soldiers who survived resented Nicholas for forcing them to fight in a war that they had felt wasn't theirs. Many deserted the military and began rebelling. Stalin was briefly conscripted, but he was deemed unfit for service. In 1917, it finally all came to a head. The Bolsheviks revolted and took over the capital city of St. Petersburg. Just a few days later, Nicholas abdicated the throne and a provisional government was set up to rule in the interim. Lenin, who had been in self-imposed exile in Switzerland, rode back to regain his leadership of the Bolsheviks. An armed conflict took place in July, this time against the provisional government, which quickly tried to arrest the Bolsheviks responsible. Leon Trotsky was arrested, but Lenin managed to escape. By October, though, the Bolsheviks overthrew even the provisional government. Lenin became the chairman of the new government and wanted to have Stalin serve in his cabinet alongside Trotsky and Yakov Sverdlov. Stalin was still in Siberian exile at the time. 
But after a mandate that allowed all political prisoners to return home, he arrived a free man in St. Petersburg and joined Lenin's cabinet. Almost as an afterthought, Tsar Nicholas II and his family were executed in July of 1918. Stalin held an administrative role in which he would mainly determine party membership, and he developed an intimidating strategy to separate the loyal from the disloyal. It is said that Stalin would take important meetings on a massive barge on the Volga River. The story goes that if Stalin couldn't be convinced of a colleague's loyalty, he would have them shot and thrown into the river. Stalin believed that death solves all problems, no man, no problem. Many opponents of socialism may have felt the same way. Eliminate a man causing problems for you, and the problem goes away as well. In August of 1918, 28-year-old Dora Kaplan had a problem with Vladimir Lenin. Kaplan was a member of the Socialist Revolutionary Party, but was furious with Lenin for banning her party from the Bolshevik movement. She shot and wounded him in a surprise attack. Stalin responded to this event with a fiery letter to his comrades, urging a retaliation with, quote, the organization of open and systematic mass terror against the bourgeoisie and its agents, end quote. And so began the Red Terror. On September 1st, 1918, a Bolshevik newspaper proclaimed, quote, we will turn our hearts into steel, which we will temper in the fire of suffering and the blood of fighters for freedom. Without mercy, without sparing, we will kill our enemies in scores of hundreds. Let them be thousands. Let them drown themselves in their own blood. But it wasn't just the threat of blood and violence seeping into the ether. In 1919, 39-year-old Stalin married his second wife, 18-year-old Nadezhda Aliyeva, daughter of a Georgian revolutionary and Stalin's former personal assistant. In March of 1921, Nadezhda gave birth to a son, Vasily. Less than a year later, Stalin was in for another life-changing event. He became general secretary of the Communist Party, a position that required him to build support for the party and allowed him to appoint his friends and allies for government positions. Around this time, Lenin checked into a hospital to have a bullet removed, the one that had been inside him since the day he was shot by Dora Kaplan a few years earlier. The procedure was expected to go smoothly, and for the most part, it did. But shortly after, a blood vessel broke in his brain, leaving Lenin paralyzed on the right side of his body and unable to speak. Stalin now became Lenin's voice. Literally, he spoke on Lenin's behalf. This became complicated when the two disagreed on an issue of foreign trade. Stalin challenged Lenin's view, which painted a target on his back. Lenin intended to remove his old comrade from the position, but before he could, Lenin suffered a heart attack on January 21, 1924. He died instantly. Leon Trotsky was supposed to replace Lenin as leader of the Soviet Union. He had been part of the communist cause longer than Stalin had, after all, but Stalin was determined to get it. Stalin and Trotsky differed in their views of communism and how it should evolve. Stalin believed in strengthening communism first in the countries the Soviet Union controlled before expanding to the rest of the world. But Trotsky wanted world revolution from the start. The majority increasingly sided with Stalin's views. So he was able to edge out Trotsky for prime leadership around 1924 
And so Stalin began the process of building a purely communist society. But while he was focusing on that goal, his family was suffering. In 1925, Stalin's eldest son, Yakov, became engaged to a woman his father disapproved of. Stalin wound up pushing the woman away from Yakov. Yakov tried to kill himself by gunshot. But he didn't succeed, only managing to wound himself. When Stalin found him, bloody and injured, he said in disgust, quote, he can't even shoot straight, end quote. But Stalin had another shot at fatherhood. On February 28, 1926, Stalin's wife Nadezhda gave birth to Stalin's first and only daughter, Svetlana Stalina. Stalin expressed a different side of himself to Svetlana. He was gentle and kind. He called her my little hostess and told her she could be his secretary and give him orders. He would sit her on his lap and give her many kisses. And when he wrote to her, he always signed his letters Little Papa. The same year as Svetlana's birth, Stalin expanded his band of loyal colleagues. He and Sergei Kirov developed a friendship inside and outside of the political realm. It seems Stalin was grooming Kirov as his protege. And as he looked to the future, Stalin also looked to clean up loose ends from his past. He arranged the removal of Trotsky from the party. It was easy to do. All Stalin had to do was wait for Trotsky and his supporters to demonstrate against him, then declare Trotsky a traitor to the cause. Stalin then sent Trotsky into exile. He would never enter Russia again. Stalin had eliminated his competition and was now in control of the Communist Party and the Soviet Union as a whole. His habit of forming enemies within his own party was a trend that began here but only grew as time went on. He became permanently fearful of betrayal and losing his power, which led to periodic purges within his government. But there were larger problems to contend with. In 1927, the Soviet Union was experiencing a dramatic food shortage due to a bad harvest. Around the same time, 48-year-old Stalin introduced his first five-year plan in order to get a leg up on industrialization. The plan revolved around developing iron and steel, machine tools, electric power, and transport. The goal was to increase coal production by 111%, iron production by 200%, and electric power production by 335%. Those are some numbers. His justification for this? If the Soviet Union did not industrialize rapidly, it would be defenseless against Western capitalist countries. There's more. Stalin planned to motivate workers with a controversial caveat. Laborers would no longer receive equal pay. Instead, the harder a man worked, the more he was rewarded. How was this measured? By the output of product. This differed from the previously established principle that all men contribute to the workforce and receive the same amount for doing so. Well, to make matters worse, the food shortage became an even larger problem, and Stalin began enforcing collectivization, in which individual farms were consolidated into government farms. Stalin blamed the peasants for the shortage, accusing them of hoarding grain, and ordered communist members to raid the rural areas and bring back as much grain as they could. He instituted a policy that required peasant farmers to hand over their extra grain, the Kulaks, a group of wealthy farmers who owned land and could afford to hire help, resisted Stalin's law, and so he considered them 
enemies of the state. This, however, did not solve the food shortage, so Stalin called for something even more drastic. He ordered the destruction of the kulaks as a class. Stalin divided the kulaks into three groups, which would determine their fate, deportation, imprisonment, or death. Regarding this policy, Stalin actually wrote, quote, we must break the back of the peasantry. Because of this, millions of peasants and farmers starved, an event which was deemed the Great Famine. It was so horrible that some even turned to cannibalism. After the Kulak deportations began, opposition against Stalin and his policy became rampant. One of these opponents was Martimian Ryutin, who organized a group in Moscow. This group set their sights on removing Stalin from leadership. Ryutin even went further, writing a manifesto opposing Stalin and seeking democracy that reflected the political system of the West. As you may have guessed, this greatly angered Stalin. He called for the man's execution. Because of this, Stalin and his protege Sergei Kirov's relationship began to change, because Kirov argued openly against the death penalty. In 1932, 53-year-old Stalin had Ryutin arrested, expelled from the Communist Party, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. He couldn't get the support from his base for the execution. That same year, during a political gathering on November 9, 1932, Stalin's young wife, Nadezhda, criticized Stalin's policies in front of several of his colleagues. Stalin then began flicking cigarettes at her, perhaps a warning that something worse might be coming, or maybe he just intended to humiliate her. She eventually left the table and returned to her room. There, she ended her life. She was 31 years old. Nadezhda's maid claims that Stalin had actually killed his wife, but that was never confirmed. For the accusation, the maid received three years imprisonment. 11-year-old Vasily and 6-year-old Svetlana took their mother's death pretty hard. Svetlana especially. She felt a real sense of abandonment, in part because she no longer had the affection and support of her father. His quest for ultimate control of the Soviet Union consumed him. In May of 1934, he commanded the Central Committee of the Communist Party to rewrite Russian history. Why? To make Russians proud of their heritage, which meant changing the truth about how the people felt about czarist oppression. He had school books rewritten to exclude the rebellions and general social malaise of the people. But it was also to make Stalin look good. This is when the propaganda began. In the Soviet Union, massive posters and portraits of Stalin lined the streets. He appeared in newspapers every day. The man was portrayed as a savior of his people, a god even. He took credit for the revolution, providing for the needs of his people and protecting them from the corruption of the West. In a nutshell, Stalin didn't agree with the West's democratic policies. He wanted more control over his nation. Which is probably one of the reasons he arranged the formation of the NKVD, the New Communist Secret Police. This organization would carry out any and all of Stalin's commands, however heinous and invasive they were. But would he go as far as assassination? Perhaps. The people responded well to Stalin's former protege, Sergei Kirov. His eloquence enthralled them. Stalin did not have the same effect, and he felt threatened by this. 
On December 1, 1934, a man by the name of Leonid Nikolaev shot and killed Kirov, but many believe that Stalin ordered the killing. That gunshot signaled a new wave of terror that was about to hit the Soviet Union. In a tyrannical and paranoid downward spiral, Stalin began a series of trials and purges, a way for him to eliminate any suspected threats to his power. Welcome to the new era of the Red Terror. At the 1936 show trials, Stalin tried numerous individuals, many of whom were supposedly loyal to Trotsky and involved in a plot to destroy Stalin. All were found guilty and executed. Few were brave enough to speak out against Stalin, but Leon Trotsky, living in exile in Mexico at the time, was filmed saying, quote, These trials develop not from communism, not from socialism, but from Stalinism. That is, from the irresponsible despotism of the bureaucracy over the people, end quote. Not too long after, a Soviet agent attacked Trotsky with an ice pick, leading to his death days later. By this point, Stalin was killing people as if he were simply chewing gum. He next became suspicious of leaders within the Red Army, believing that they might be planning a coup against him. So Stalin began removing them from their posts. The people lived in fear. Society was disintegrating. Neighbors turned on neighbors, accusing them of crimes. Stalin had made a society of enemies. But, surprise, surprise, things were about to get worse, because in the late 1930s, there was another despot in town, or near town, a man who would go down in history as the most notorious dictator to ever live, Adolf Hitler. Stalin was watching Hitler and his actions closely. He used him as a model for leadership. He liked how Hitler manipulated the population and eliminated political opponents. And he saw how successfully Germany invaded Austria and Czechoslovakia. Acting out of fear, or perhaps just being proactive, Stalin decided to ally with Hitler. He expected to gain territory, the Baltics and half of Poland. The Soviet Union and Germany signed a non-aggression pact in August of 1939. In the summer of 1940, the Nazi troops were in full swing and actively taking over Europe. And Hitler got greedy. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now back to the story. 63-year-old Joseph Stalin was allied with Nazi Germany in 1941, towards the middle of World War II. He genuinely believed that they were both fighting on the same side. There were suspicions that the Germans would invade the Soviet Union next, but Stalin didn't consider this a real threat. They had the peace pact. But on June 22, 1941, German troops crossed into Russian territory. Stalin's interpreter at the time later recalled how quiet Stalin became when he heard the news. He was shocked speechless. It didn't take long for Russian cities to fall under attack. Stalin had spent so much time and energy purging the military of its leaders and commanders that there were not enough forces for the Soviet Union to defend itself. And then the war became especially personal for Stalin. German troops captured his firstborn son, Yakov, who was serving in the Red Army. He was now 36 years old. Once the Germans discovered who he was, they told Stalin they would return Yakov alive. In exchange for one of their own prisoners of war, Friedrich Paulus, a German field marshal. If Stalin said yes, he would have his son back. 
But what was his answer? Quote, I will not trade a marshal for a lieutenant. One theory as to why Stalin didn't trade Paulus for his son was because of the damaging precedent it might start. If Stalin traded a German military leader for his son, what about all the other Russian sons who were prisoners of war? Right. It may have been easier to avoid the trade completely, which is what Stalin did, as cold and calculating as it was. By this point, it seemed that Stalin's heart had become so hardened, not even the potential death of his son could soften it. And it didn't. On April 14, 1943, German troops shot Yakov at the internment camp. They claim they shot him as he was trying to escape, but it's more likely that they executed him. Yakov had tried to kill himself several years earlier, but only ended up with a wound. Now, Stalin's firstborn son was dead, and Stalin had crossed the point of no return. Meanwhile, 16-year-old Svetlana had fallen in love with Alexei Kopler, a Jewish filmmaker more than twice her age. Stalin sent Kopler to a labor camp, earning Svetlana's rage. His family was falling apart at the seams. As World War II raged on, Stalin became disappointed with his troops. He set his sights on protecting one city in particular, the city named for him, Stalingrad. German troops were already initiating a takeover, and if they were successful, it would cut off Soviet transport to the south. Plus, this was Stalin's city. If it fell in the hands of Hitler, it would be a loss on many levels. So Stalin had to protect it. But German bombs were coming down from the sky and tearing through buildings and monuments. There was no better time for a counteroffensive. The Soviet Union had a plan. Codename Operation Uranus, the attack shocked the German troops by destroying the weaker flanks. This was a major turning point during the Battle of Stalingrad, something no one could have expected. And over time, this offensive began to tear down the German forces. But retreat was not an option for Hitler, so he ordered his men to remain and fight. Yet there was one thing he hadn't anticipated, the harsh Russian winter. To make matters worse, Nazi troops were low on food and medical supplies, which weakened their forces considerably. On February 2, 1943, German troops surrendered to the Soviets. Stalingrad was back in the hands of its people. That battle changed the course of the war. Soon after, U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin met in Crimea to discuss the state of the world post-war. The three came to the agreement that after Germany's official surrender, they would divide up the nation into four zones. Each country, plus France, would occupy one of those zones to establish social and economic unity post-war. However, all four nations knew where the power lay. Germany's capital city, Berlin. Whoever took control of that would have the most control over Germany. At the conference, Stalin agreed to allow free elections in Poland, which would reflect a more democratic government. When World War II came to a close in Europe, U.S. President Harry S. Truman, who succeeded FDR after his death, gave a speech announcing the good news. This is a solemn but a glorious hour. I only wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to witness this day. General Eisenhower informs me 
that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. Another meeting between the three nations took place in San Francisco in April, and this resulted in plans for the creation of the United Nations, which was formed in October of 1945. The goal of the United Nations? To establish and maintain peace and security, fight for human rights, and help resolve international economic, social, and political conflicts. By this point, Truman and Churchill were not happy with Stalin's actions. He had broken his promise of free elections in Poland. As tensions rose, American and British ties to the Soviet Union began to disintegrate. This was the start of the Cold War. America's approach for preventing Stalin's expansionism and hostile takeover was deemed containment. But in 1948, Stalin tried to take full control over Berlin. With military force, Stalin trapped the citizens inside the city. The U.S. responded by airlifting supplies. So Stalin decided to try and one-up them again, desiring to become the world's one and only superpower, and began the construction of an atom bomb to rival that of the U.S. Cue the famous arms race. After the Soviets tested their bomb in 1949, President Truman sanctioned the creation of an incredibly destructive atomic bomb in response, the hydrogen bomb. This began the tense and terrifying threat of nuclear destruction, the potential for a third world war. Living in a state of constant fear, people built bomb shelters and had plans in place in the event of nuclear war. At any moment, the decimation of the world could commence. It was an anxiety-ridden time for the world, and especially for Joseph Stalin. By 1953, the 73-year-old's health began to decline, with his paranoia on the rise. He rejected his doctor's orders to rest more and work less, so much so that he had his doctor arrested for even suggesting it. Stalin surrounded himself with a tight-knit group of advisors. If he got the slightest whiff of suspicion, he would have no problem removing them from their posts or worse, and he made sure they were aware of that. Paranoia and suspicion became Stalin's default status, and he was planning another purge, similar to that which occurred in the 1930s. This concerned his advisors. They may have questioned Stalin's ability to continue leading the Soviet Union. On the night of February 28, 1953, Stalin summoned his men, including Lavrenti Beria, the head of the secret police, and Nikita Khrushchev, a valued member of Stalin's inner circle. They watched a movie, had a meal, and discussed plans for extracting confessions from suspicious individuals. They finished around five or six in the morning. Khrushchev later recalled, quote, We said goodbye to comrade Stalin and departed. I remember that when we were in the entrance hall, Stalin came out as usual to see us off. He was in a jocular mood and joked a lot. We left in good spirits. Those dinners did not always end on a happy note. The next day, none of the inner circle had heard from Stalin. It wasn't until 10.30 in the evening that someone went to check on him. Either a guard or a maid entered his private quarters to check. Stalin was on the floor in his pajamas, lying in a pool of his own urine. He wasn't moving. Doctors were eventually called, and they found that Stalin was unresponsive. It appeared he had suffered a stroke. But he was still alive, for now. But on March 5th, 1953, 
Stalin began vomiting blood from a stomach hemorrhage. He died soon after. What would have caused the bleeding in his stomach? Some believe it was poison, slipped into his evening wine. We may never know for sure, but on that day in early March, the tyranny of Joseph Stalin was over. He died at 73. Over, but not forgotten. He contributed to a legacy of tyranny that would shape the world in many ways. The Red Scare and McCarthyism from 1950 to 1954 turned the United States upside down, as people were accused of being communists. This resulted in the persecution of several individuals. It was a modern-day witch hunt. Stalin's involvement in Korea's political affairs contributed to the Korean War. Communism, which he had helped expand, spread into many nations, and we can't forget about his death count. It is estimated that due to Stalin's labor camps, the Great Famine, and his ordered execution, he is responsible for at least 20 million deaths. But historians have calculated his number of victims, meaning those he not only killed, but also those exiled or deported, at more like 40 million. That number is unbelievable and perhaps even overlooked. It seems that Stalin's crimes are often overshadowed by Hitler and his atrocities, considering they happened around the same time. Overshadowed, maybe, but not to be ignored. Timothy Snyder, in an article from the New York Review, posed the question, who was worse, Hitler or Stalin? At the top of the article, he answers with this, quote, Hitler was worse because his regime propagated the unprecedented horror of the Holocaust, the attempt to eradicate an entire people on racial grounds. Yet Stalin was also worse because his regime killed far, far more people. Tens of millions, it was often claimed, in the endless wastes of the gulag." End quote. It's nearly impossible to come to a conclusion because of the scope and depth of the atrocities. No answer could ever be satisfying when you're discussing so many innocent lives lost due to one man's inability to look past his nightmares of conspiracy. As Stalin said, quote, I trust no one, not even myself. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode releases every other Wednesday. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Jessica Mallow and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.